Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Drive Nation podcast, now episode three. I'm Dan Prosser, joined once again by my Drive Nation co-host and co-founder, Andrew Frankel. Hello, Andrew. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to uh, all of you. Um, thank you very, very much for joining us uh, once again. Thank you also very much for all the feedback that you've given us for the first couple of podcasts. Um, it, it seems that uh, at least most of you like what we are doing, which is very encouraging. Um, we're delighted because we quite enjoy doing it too. So um, yeah, on to the next one. Yeah, we're still finding our feet. This is only the third episode, as I've said. Um, we're still doing this over Skype for obvious reasons. Andrew and I can't really travel to do these together, but the Skype thing seems to work. As I've explained before, there's no real point in trying to do topical podcasts at the moment because in the car world, there is nothing topical. There's really not a great deal to discuss. So instead, we're focusing on special standalone podcasts that aren't time sensitive and can kind of live forever. This episode is all about one of the most fearsome, most wonderful racetracks in the world. That's the Nürburgring. Um, Andrew, I'm going to put you on the spot. Off the top of your head, can you name 10 Nordschleife corners? Yeah, very easily. Um, okay, uh, so, uh, well, you start off with the hats and back and then you sort of wander along a bit, don't you? And then you go through Sweden, quite so thinking down to Aremberg, then down the Foxhole up the other side into... It's been a long time since I've been there. Adenau Forest, uh, and then you go down to, is it Callan Harbour after that? You go down to Adenau Bridge, up the other side, up through Bergwerk, uh, and then you go up towards the Carousel, then you go up to Her Act, and then up to that you're into places like uh, the Whippleman uh, and Flansgarten and the Little Carousel and Dottingerhoe, and that's got to be 10, at least. That was 15 or something, I think. Well, well, there we go. So I think what we've demonstrated there is that you're fairly familiar with the place. Um, and so with that in mind, Andrew, I know you've raced at Spa a lot. I know you raced at Le Mans. Um, you've probably raced at most of Europe's really great circuit. So can you just kind of tell us where the Nordschleife fits in with that lot? 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's the one that scares you most. It's certainly the one that scares me most. Uh, I, I would love to be one of these guys who says, yeah, I love racing at the Nürburgring. Nowhere else. No point racing anywhere else. The Nürburgring is the only place in the world because it's the most frightening. It's the most challenging. It is all those things. Um, but because I have a large yellow streak running up the middle of my back, uh, to <laughs> me, it's the only place. It's the only great circuit where I've raced where I enjoyed having raced there more than I enjoyed racing there. Um, mm. and, and partly that was because whenever I've raced there, I've been in pretty slow stuff. Um, and you don't really want to be in a slow car at the Nürburgring, particularly when you're up against 150 much faster cars. Uh, it's not a place to be looking in your mirrors. So, um, I mean, I love the place. Um, would I even admit to enjoying track days in decent stuff more than racing there? Maybe not, but it's probably, I mean, you know, at Spa, I would race at Spa all day, all night long. And I wouldn't even think about doing a track day there if I knew there was any chance of racing there. At Spa, racing is over. The same with Le Mans um, and, you know, lots of other places that one might go. But the Nürburgring, yeah, it's, it's pretty intimidating. Okay, so we'll we'll go into more detail on that stuff a little bit later on. Um, I think I, I really want to start off, though, with a bit of history and context. Um, now, lots of people still seem to think that the Nürburgring was a Hitler initiative. Actually, it wasn't. Um, it was opened several years before Hitler even came into power. Building work started in 1925, and there was racing at the Nürburgring in 1927 onwards. Um, I, I suppose it is true that it became a part of the Nazi Party propaganda machine later on, um, just in the same way that uh, the great German Grand Prix teams of, of the time did. Um, but to, to describe it as a Hitler initiative is completely false. Um, in fact, there were two reasons behind the Nürburgring coming, uh, coming to be, and the first of those was that Germany at the time had a burgeoning car industry, but it didn't have a purpose-built racetrack. UK, uh, France, Italy, Spain, they all had purpose-built racetracks, generally with heavily banked corners. Germany had road circuits like Avis and Solitude. A purpose-built track would help to support that growing German car industry, um, and that was one of the main reasons for, for building the place. The second one was, actually, it was a, a social infrastructure project conceived to bring work and industry to what was, at the time, a fairly impoverished part of the country, the Eiffel Mountains in West Germany. It's the Nordschleife, of course, that we all think about when we say the Nürburgring, and that's the 13-mile loop um, that we're familiar with today. There was, of course, as well the Sudschleife, which was similar in character, but it was shorter, about five miles long. And those two circuits could be combined to create one enormous monster track layout. The Sudschleife is no longer there anymore. Well, it is there. I think you can trace it if you know where you're going, but it's certainly not a part of the circuit. Yeah, I think I think they bulldozed a, a load of it to make the uh, the new track there in the in the 1980s. So I think I think you're right. I think there are bits, but you certainly couldn't go and do a lap of it. Yeah, um, and F1 raced on the Nordschleife uh, until 1976. Actually, it's extraordinary to think that the Nordschleife was being used for Formula One as recently as that. I mean, unbelievable, really. Um, and it all came to an end, of course, when Nicky Lauda had his near-fatal accident there uh, that year in 76. And the drivers, almost to a man, they said, uh, I don't want to race here anymore. Is that about right, Andrew? 
Yeah, I think there were uh, there, there were mixed opinions about the place. Um, if you've uh, if you've seen the Hunt Lauder film Rush, um, there's that sort of driver's briefing in there where um, Lauder <coughs> stands up and makes a stand and said, "This is a stupid place to be racing cars like this at." Um, and I think at the time, um, yeah, there was an awful lot of opposition to it. Um, but I think I, I, I think as the car, as cars went on, and they got faster. I don't think that anybody was clamoring too much to get back there um after they stopped racing there obviously they continued to race um sports cars there um mm. up until 1983 uh, proper group c cars um which but even they i mean i can remember talking to derek bell about racing a group c porsche 956 round there um and he said it was it wasn't actually a very pleasant experience because the beating you got over the bumps um, in cars with full ground effects like that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, so I guess I mean it would be amazing, wouldn't it, to see you know real top draw racing cars going around there? But it's you know as you say, this was a place you know um, which was designed in the 1920s, and it's not like um, you know it's not like Monza. It's effectively you know a street circuit um, that's mm. 13 miles long. And you know, and and and, and the yeah, the, the the top line racing cars have, have just outgrown it, sadly. It's the length really that makes it so challenging for um, very fast racing cars. The length and also the lack of runoff. It's very narrow. Um, it's fundamentally quite a dangerous circuit. But the issue is, if you if someone has an accident somewhere along the track, it takes an age for medical assistance to reach them. One of the reasons why after '76 F1 just didn't go back there. Um, and so in the 80s, they built uh, the, the modern Grand Prix circuit, which is still used to this day by, by Formula One, when it, it tends to alternate, doesn't it, with Hockenheim. I think it hasn't done for the last few years, but it's reasonable to expect F1 to go back there at some point. Um, that's a modern circuit. Huge runoffs, gravel traps, emergency access all round, modern barriers and so on. But nothing like the character of, of the old Nordschleife. Now, Andrew, you mentioned... Group C racing uh, in the 80s there. Perhaps the most sort of uh, legendary, revered Nordschleife lap of all time is Stefan Belloff's in, in the 956. Yeah, um, what was it, a 6.11 in quali. Um, yeah. So the next fastest bloke was Jackie X, who did a 6.16. You know, Jackie X, I'm sure, would be regarded as... Probably, I would say, definitely the greatest of all the Group C drivers. And the third fastest bloke was 20 seconds behind Belloff, <laughs> um, which gives you some kind of idea of, um, of of how he was driving that car. Of course, he did then go on in the race to, you know, to turn the car into, you know, almost sawdust. He had such a big, big accident and, and, and mercifully he was uh, he wasn't hurting it. But. Um, he kind of, I think he took it upon himself to show the world just how quick he was around there. Uh, and he was sharing the car with Derek Bell. Um, and I think that Derek would probably say that Stefan didn't need to be driving that fast um, and was mm. taking unnecessary risks and threw away the race and, and a rather nice Porsche 956 in the process. So we've mentioned that we no longer have top line racing at the Nürburgring, at the Nordschleifer at least, but... We do have GT3 cars, and if you watch any VLN race or the N24, you watch the speed of those GT3 cars around that place, and you, it, it's staggering how quickly they're going these, these days. Um, and you can sort of see why you don't actually want any more power, any more speed, any more downforce around that place. 
Yeah, it's it's all um, to me. It's, it's it's all a function of the environment. So if you see GT3 cars at you know, a big, wide open airfield circuit like Silverstone, um, they don't look that quick. But it's like if you've ever been to Bathurst and you've watched the GT3s around there, they look they look like spaceships. They're going so mm. fast, um, and it's all about. It's not just the speed; it's the environment and and doing so in such a narrow track with such little runoff. The sensation of speed is accentuated and, and and you get a real real um you know idea of just how fast these things are going in, in, in a way you wouldn't do in a sort of wide open airfield circuit yeah so there there are still some very quick cars racing there the 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 24 hour race is a highlight i've been a few times and it's it's just an, an incredible event and uh, apart from the racing side the the, the neuschleifer has always been a public toll road so you can pay a few year, I think it's now 20, 30 euros, actually. You can drive your road car on and do a lap. Um, there are also track days there. And w- one of its main purposes nowadays is the industry pool sessions. If you've been to the Nürburgring, you'll have seen all the enormous car manufacturer edifices along the main straight. It's become a key test and development location for many of them. Um, we'll come back to that in a moment because there's a very interesting talking point about the Nürburgring there. Before we get onto that, Andrew, I'm going to mine that incredible memory you've got for for old racing stories. Can you give us two or three of the most famous races from over the decades at the Nürburgring? Uh, yeah, I'm sure I can. Um, I'm lucky insofar as it was a place that did tend to um, produce some pretty good races. And, and obviously it was a it was a real driver's track. And there were times, 1935 in particular, um, and others I'll come on to, where you know, the world's best driver could do miracles and perform almost the impossible. In 1935, Tanzio Nuvolari in a P3 Tipo B Alfa Romeo, totally and utterly um, uncompetitive against the might of the German auto unions and Mercedes-Benz. I think there were nine German cars there and there was little old Tazio in his, in his, in, in, in his old and uncompetitive Alpha. Um, and he got a little bit lucky with the weather, but he just blitzed it. And, you know, it, it, that's always been regarded as, you know, certainly his greatest drive and he's certainly regarded as the greatest of all the pre-war drivers. So that was an extraordinary... I don't think that... I'm not even sure they had the national anthem. Um, they were so amazed that um that he won and 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 so didn't expect it then i suppose the most famous one i mean possibly the most um revered grand prix of all 57 when fangio won in the 250f um against the ferraris of mike hawthorne and peter collins um he did it despite a pit stop that left him you know so far behind his last 10 laps he broke the lap record nine times (laughs) um and did both of them and and the problem was he was gaining on because it's such a long lap and they could obviously only signal once every 10 minutes or so um by the time the teams the ferrari team realized there was a problem and then had to wait to signal the guys to tell them there was a problem fangio was on them um and what obviously nobody knew at the time was not only was that fangio's greatest victory it was also his last it was also the last Formula One win by a Maserati. So for all sorts of reasons, that's a, a clearly a standout one. Um, probably the most dominant win that I can think of, certainly in Formula One, was 68, when Jackie Stewart, he won by four minutes. 
He was he, <laughs> he was out of the car and in the grandstand spectating when the next car yeah. came along the line. Um, in his Matra, uh, didn't have a V12 then, did it? it had the DFE in it. Um, yeah, I think he has some good tyres. Um, and obviously, if you're leading, it helps that you can see because you're not in the spray. But even so, that I think that Jackie, even to this day, would say that was probably his his drive of drives. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, what's that, three um, of my personal highlights from, from the Nürburgring. But obviously, there are, there are loads and loads of others. Oh, Jackie Oliver in 1967. He came fifth in a Formula 2 car. I think that probably, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was when, to fill up the grids, they, had, they ran F, the F1 and the F2 race together. Um, and he came fifth outright in a two-litre Formula 2 car with four cylinders against three-litre V8 Formula 1 cars. So the, the place is dripping with just incredible stories. And, and I'll tell you now that Andrew delivered all of those off the top of his head. He doesn't have any notes prepared. He didn't know that I was going to ask him that question. So yeah, how sad am I? There you go. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so now I mentioned earlier that the Nürburgring has become uh, a fundamentally important test and development venue for car manufacturers. Um, Andrew, there's a school of thought that says the place ruins road cars, makes them too stiff and uncomfortable. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is it true? Uh, I, 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 think it's, I think it's an easy label to stick on it, isn't it? Um, and there are, you know, there are all sorts of people who there's this sort of anti-Nürburgring lobby and think that the whole thing's ridiculous. Um, I think lap times in certain cars are ridiculous, but I, I cannot see the argument against doing at least part of your development um, on a track like that, because it is... It is more like a road than anywhere else you go, particularly in terms of its camber and surface and gradients. Um, it, it is uh, a unique facility, also its length. Um, so, you know, as part of a program, I would think it is, if not essential, then a very beneficial facility to be able to access, um, but not as the be all and end all. What do you think? I think that's about right. And But there's also a degree of misunderstanding out there as to what the Nürburgring is actually used for. By and large, it's endurance and durability testing. Um, so you'll have drivers who just pound around that place hour after hour, just putting, you know, v- very arduous miles onto components just to see when they'll break. Um, but it's also an extremes testing place because it's such a challenging circuit. And there are places where cars will go light and there are places where they'll be loaded up in very unusual ways and then very quickly unloaded and the engineers need to know that their cars can handle those really tricky circumstances because if they can handle the worst that the Nürburgring has to throw at them uh, they'll more than be able to handle whatever any other road or any other circuit can throw at them. Um, There are also some kind of characteristics of the place that make it particularly useful from an endurance and durability testing point of view. So the very long downhill run from Arenberg to Brideshide, that's, that's a killer for brakes because you're carrying so much speed into big braking zones. And then there's a long uphill drag from Bergwerk to Hoact where the engine is working really hard, straining against the gradient, which is enormously tough on drivetrain cooling systems. So for all those reasons, it's it's a bit of a car killer, really. And if a car is up to that place, it, it'll be a match for any road or circuit. It's very rare, I think, that cars are actually tuned and set up specifically for the ring. Um, it's just not used that way. 
generally. There will, of course, be uh, exceptions to that. And whenever we see car manufacturers bragging about their sub seven minute lap times, you have to wonder, don't you? Okay, well, have they just set the car up for the Nürburgring, um, you know, and and forget everything else? Um, Which brings us on to Andrew. Do we care about Nürburgring road car lap times? Uh, For the very great part, no, I don't care at all. I don't care which is the current lap record holder of two-ton SUVs. It's not something which is of any interest to me at all. Of course, there is an academic interest. Um, I've enjoyed the battle. I've I've enjoyed the battle between the Lamborghinis and the Porsches. Um, I I know it's, it's not smoke and mirrors, but I know that car manufacturers... You know, set their cars up differently. Some manufacturers, when they say they're a standard road cars, the word standard is a bit more inverted in inverted commas than it is with the other ones. Also, things like tyres. I mean, so much of the speed that has come mm. out of the Nürburgring have come from these sort of chocolate track day tyres that, um, you know, they, that they come out with these days. Um, and so I, I don't think I should be as interested in it as I am. But every time... I hear that someone's gone and done another fastest ever lap of the Nürburgring. I go back to that thousand kilometer race in 1983 and see how far up the grid they would have got them. And, and they're well into the top 10 now. So, you know, if you think about that for a moment, you know, in 1983, you know, full, um, ground effect group C cars, massive slicks, huge amounts of power, you know, prototype racing cars designed to do nothing else other than race. And there are now road cars on road tires lapping the same circuit in the same time. Which is which is just nuts to me. And there will be people who go, it's not quite the same circuit because they flattened off that bit and they've resurfaced that bit. And of course, even so, just as a sort of general principle, just to show you how far we have come in the last whatever it is, you know, 37 years, um, I think it is pretty extraordinary. And, and that I find, if only academically, pretty interesting. It's interesting that you mention tyres because you and I have both tried this incredible new Michelin, the Michelin Cup 2R. Um, And we've been at circuits when Michelin have been there um, and they've bolted on, this is for magazine tests, and they'll bolt on a brand new set of tyres when the lap time is about to be set. And they've probably got three or four quick laps in them and then they're off. Yeah, I mean, I've had this conversation with them and also with manufacturers who provide them. Um, and, And I can remember doing exactly this with a with a pista at, at Anglesey. And uh, yeah, the, the, they took the tyres off after it was either four or five flying laps and said they're no good mm. anymore. But the, the flip side of that argument is what they're actually saying is they're no good for setting lap times. Um, and, yeah. and the performance curve, they do peak and they do come back off, but then they stabilise for a bit. But even so, you're still talking about cars, which, about tyres which do wear out quite quickly, substantial upfront investments. And also, you know, if you're going to go particularly to somewhere like the Nürburgring, you know, from the UK to go and do your track day, you know, are you really going to go out there on that set of tyres, which will be pretty useless in the wet, and then pound around the Nürburgring, you know, unless you somehow have a means of getting access to more tyres and can then spend the time getting the fitted of the car, um, you're probably going to be better off on something just a little bit more sensible. Exactly. And I, I suppose my sort of basic frustration with this Nürburgring lap time squabble is that it's entirely unregulated. Uh, We have no idea if the tyres that are bolted onto the car at the time are representative. We we actually have no idea about turbo boost settings and all this other stuff. And the times are not set 
on the same afternoon when conditions can actually play, uh, you know, play a huge role and the track can be quick or it can be slow. Um, so really, we don't know what we're looking at, do we? It, what, what you want, actually, is for all the manufacturers to send their, their quickest cars along with one unnamed driver. Perhaps we can send the Stig along from Top Gear and have a, a stopwatch running and, and set some independent times in the same conditions on regulated tyres. Yeah, but they still have to be you know, cars picked at random from the line, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's true. Customer cars, maybe. Yeah, and, 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 that's, um, and that's never going to happen. Um, no. So, yes, it, it is. I mean, and, and, and obviously, it's like, it's like race, race teams. You know, they exist to bend the rules as far as they possibly can without actually breaking them, because that's the way you get your competitive advantage. And I'm sure that all manufacturers, quite understandably, will you know, make their cars as competitive, as quick as they possibly can. Um, while technically just about being within what you might on a sunny day think is a car that you could deliver to a customer somehow. Mm. Yeah, so I think you and I, uh, we have a healthy scepticism, don't we, towards those, those lap record claims. So we're talking about driving very quickly around the Nürburgring. Um, Andrew, do you, from your point of view, someone who's raced there a bit and done lots of track days at the Nürburgring, is there one key to unlocking a, you know, a, a respectable lap time around that place or is it actually much more complicated than that? It's, not, it, it's complicated insofar as there's obviously an awful lot of it. Um, mm. and, but really, if there is a key, and this, this is going to sound like a complete cop-out, but there is no substitute for time spent there. Um, it is, I wrote on DN uh, a while back about doing a race where I shared a car with Klaus Ludwig, um, you know, multiple Le Mans winner, multiple DTM champion. Um, and, you know, I thought I knew the ring quite well until I shared a car with someone who really knew the ring. I mean, absolutely inside out. And when I saw his on board, not only was he using bits of track I wasn't using, he was using bits of track I didn't even know were there. And he was, I mean, and, and there wasn't a corner. I mean, apart from the fact that he's obviously a massively better driver than I could ever dream of being, there wasn't a corner where he wasn't taking time out of me um, in all areas because he knew where all the bumps were. He knew the precise, exact millimetric line through everything. Um, you know, I think that if it was, you know, in the middle of the night, you turn the lights off, he could probably do a lap in his, you know, with, with his eyes shut. Um, <laughs> so, so, so there is that. And, and, and also, um, you know, I, th- I think you know, as important as being quick round there is, is, is particularly if you're doing a track day, is, is the importance of bringing your car back. Um, and I think people very, very rarely crash on their first few laps. Um, mm. And I think that after a bit, they develop a sort of healthy respect for the place and tend not to crash after that. It's the bit in the middle. Um, I used to, um, there was a track day company called Wheel Talk, which used to host days there. And instead of me paying to go on the track day, I would, they would give me my fee in track time. So I'd go over there. Um, and what I would do is I would sit next to punters, but I'd be driving their cars. And I'd just go around the track and show them all the places where they could go off. Um, because otherwise what happens is people go off and exactly what you were talking about earlier, it takes so long to recover the car. 
and clear up the track and repair the barrier. And all the time, you've got your punter sitting back in the pits, unable to go out, getting more and more cheesed off with you. So it, it made sense for them to pay me to show people um, where not to crash. So that's, so that's it, really. Um, as far as you know, extracting the ultimate speed out of a car, um, a really, really fast car. I mean, I've never raced a GT3 car there, so I'm probably not the person to, to ask about that. But um, yeah, I, I think having very little imagination helps too. Um, I used to race a Clio Cup car um, with a mate. And in the UK, at nice safe circuits, um, our times were pretty much uh, indistinguishable. And yet we went to the ring and he was just like hours quicker than me. Um, and the only thing I could put it down to was he just wasn't thinking too hard about what could go wrong if he, if he left the circuit. And I was thinking pretty much about nothing else. So, um, yeah, no imagination um, really, really helps too. They say um, they say that to be quick, as you as you've suggested, you, as a racing driver, you need to have a lack of imagination, and that describes why there are so few journalists who are also top line racing drivers. Because to be a good writer, good journalist, you need an imagination. That explains it. Thank you so much. I've always been wondering why I'm, I'm not such a great racing driver, and, uh, <laughs> and and now I know I have too much imagination. Exactly. That you can pin it on that. Um, now I've I've been to the Nurburgring a fair number of times over the years um but if i sat down to try and calculate the number of times i've actually driven around it it's probably only 20 or 30 laps maybe a little bit more than that i've been out lots for the nurburgring 24 hours i've been out for manufacturer events and so on um but i've not really driven that many laps the the best session the best day i ever had out there was i think maybe two or three years ago uh in Porsche GB's 911 GT3 RS, the first 991 era GT3 RS. Yeah. Um, and I was out there with our mate, Chris Harris, and he was generous enough to to sit with me for a handful of laps and tell me what I needed to be doing. Um, and he, he'd raced out there tons. He knows the place really inside out. Um, and he was he was as good a coach as I could have hoped to to have and what I realized during that day and that was that was a destination Nürburgring track day what I realized that was that once you have an understanding of the lefts and rights once you know broadly where the circuit goes the the key to extract of course I wasn't timing myself because you don't do that on track days but you push and you try and go a bit faster and what Chris made me realize was that a lot of the lap time comes from releasing the car off the brakes before you can see the apex of the corner or the exit of the corner. Yeah. There are so many blind corners that you, if you wait until you can see exactly where they go and you're braking until that point, you've lost seconds. Yeah. So the, the key is to get off the brakes and trust that the circuit is still where you believe it to be um, and commit to it before you can, before you can see the apex. That, that really does take some doing just because it's such a long circuit and there are so many sections of it that look like other sections so if your knowledge isn't quite what you think it is you can so easily confuse one corner with another and find that you've carried far too much speed in and off you go Um, and you could you could even you know go the wrong way um there are so many blind brows um you can come up to one thing if the track goes left and discover it turns well i was always taught when, when I first started learning it, to look at the trees, look at the tops of the trees and see which way they go, because the track's going to follow them. 
Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, as a circuit, it's actually it's not that hard on brakes. Um, and so because apart from obviously the main straight, it's basically all corners. I, I always found it was about establishing a rhythm and trying to relax um, and not being too scared um, and just and just going with it a bit. And as you say, trusting your instincts. But you've got to have learnt it first. Mm. That's all just about time spent on the circuit, isn't it? Um, have, have you ever driven it on a on a sim on a computer game? Uh, I'm hopeless at computer games. Um, I've, I've I've tried. I I don't think I've completed a lap. Um, but you, you know, being young and, um, and and up to date with such things, presumably you, you spent days doing it. In the past, I have done, yeah. And I, I remember the first time I went out there. I can't remember when this was. I, I was eighteen or nineteen years old, so it was a while ago now, and. Until I was maybe 16 or 17, I knew so little about the Nürburgring. I, I think I'd probably heard it referenced on television somewhere or seen, uh, you know, seen the, the word Nürburgring in a magazine article. But I don't ever remember reading a long piece about the Nürburgring. And so it wasn't until Top Gear went there in 2004, Clarkson took a diesel S-Type, that I really sort of understood what the place was all about. Um, presumably, Andrew, you'd been going there for years by that point. No, I, well, yes, um, 10 years to be precise, I think. Um, I first, uh, this will sound frightfully showy off, it's not meant to, um, I first went there in 1994 because McLaren were, or was it 93, maybe 93. Uh, it was during the development phase of the McLaren F1. Um, and I'd been told that if I went out to the Nürburgring where they were doing customer laps on the new circuit um, with one of the prototype F1s, um, I might be able to sort of hitch a quick ride around the new circuit with Jonathan Palmer. Um, And so I went out there and Jonathan was there and somehow, must have been a lunch break or something, um, he suggested that we went off around the old circuit. And so my first ever lap of the Nürburgring was in the McLaren F1 with Jonathan Palmer driving it. Um, <laughs> wow. More than that... <laughs> it probably doesn't get any better than that even now, does it? Well, it, it, it's a debate you can have because two things. One is it wasn't very dry. And secondly, Jonathan hadn't been there since around the old circuit since that 1,000-kilometer race of 1983. So he hadn't been there for 11 years. And so as he was kind enough to say to me as, as the barrier went up, I'm not quite sure which way this thing goes. And then we were in a McLaren F1, um, and an F1, as anybody who, who will ever has ever driven one fast in the wet and survived the experience will tell you, not an easy car when it's raining, uh, not an easy car at all. And it, it was the I don't remember a thing about the circuit. I didn't learn anything. I was just hanging on, and I was just watching Jonathan dance this thing around this track, going, I think it goes that yes, it does go. And I was just I was a mesmerised, partly terrified. Um, but yeah, what an experience to do. Yeah, I, I can remember the other ridiculous thing about that is we turned up there at the barrier and they wouldn't let us on um, because the car didn't have a number plate, um, despite yeah. the fact that they just let a coach through with a number plate on it <laughs> and somebody towing a caravan. So we had to go back to the new circuit and literally screwdriver and number plate off some BMW that was in the car park, put it on the car, and then we were fine. <laughs> yeah, okay. ANPR wouldn't have been happy with you at all. Then. No. Um, so the thing about the place um, that you really have to be mindful of is if you're doing a track day there or a, or a tourist day there is if you go off and damage the barriers, you'll get a bill 
for the replacement barriers and also for for loss of earnings. And it's been known um, that someone will have an accident on a track day and uh, they'll walk away with a bill for several thousand euros. Um, which begs the question, Andrew, have you ever shunted there? No. No. I know <laughs> and that, you're sure this time? Yeah, 100%. I know that I forgot um, about crashing the GT2 RS, as, as you do, but I really, really, really haven't shunted a car um, at the Nürburgring. I came very close to being in a shunt at the Nürburgring um, in one of those times that I was um, instructing out there. I'd always refused to be a passenger in a car, but there was a bloke with a TVR, a black five-litre Cerbera, I think, and he was... Four and a half litre. Uh, he was desperate to show me the Nürburgring from the point of view of him driving his team and I just refused to do it um, and he'd been cajoling me all weekend and eventually he just went I just said I'm not going to do it go and enjoy yourself and off he went and I don't think he made it to the bottom of the foxhole uh, and luckily Ooh. he was okay but it was like an aircraft had come down he absolutely smashed it to pieces um, and, and the other thing just going back to what you were saying earlier is yeah, not only do you get the bill for the loss of earnings for the Armco um, I think, you know, your insurance company um, will have words. So, because there used to be some kind of, you know, clause that because you paid to go per lap, it was therefore a toll road and therefore maybe your insurance would cover it. And now mm. I think there are even track day policies which specifically exclude the Nürburgring. So that's a very, very good thing to bear in mind. Know the basis on which you're going there. Uh, know the consequences of getting it wrong um, because... Yeah, I mean, what could be the trip of a lifetime could end up being, you know, a, a nightmare you're never going to forget. So there's plenty to be mindful of if you're gonna, if you're planning a trip out there. You really need to know what you're doing from a, a you know, a, an insurance standpoint and be aware that if you have an accident, it could be trouble. Um, nonetheless, it's just such an incredible place as a car person to go. I so as I said, I first went there. I, I was 18 or 19, um, hadn't been driving for very long. And this was before uh, the internet was the big deal it is now. There certainly wasn't any web video the way we know it now. So to go there as uh, an adolescent, um, just started driving. And to, you know, I, I remember I was with my uncle and my cousin. And I remember being driven around part of the circuit and seeing a Dodge Viper come thundering past. And you just... It blew my mind at the time, and I, I could not believe there was this place where you can go and just witness that, that sort of thing. Never mind driving for yourself, just witness that sort of thing going on. Um, and that's just the Nürburgring, isn't it? It's, if, if you spend time there, you just sort of fall in love with the place. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's exactly the right attitude. And to me, you know, particularly if you're not, obviously if you're racing, you have, kind of have to go as fast as you can. But if you're just there for a track day, I mean, if you're at Silverstone or Spa or Donington or any of these other circuits, yeah, of course you're going to push on a bit. But the thing to me about the Nürburgring, it's so much, it's not really about you. It's not really about your car. It's about the Nürburgring. You're at this place where, you know, Nuvolari beat the might of, you know, the Nazi machine in the 1930s. It's, you know, it's, it's where all these extraordinary things happened over this amazing piece of time. And you're driving around this circuit, which is so unlike any other circuit in the world. And you're thinking about the lunatic who designed it. Um, and thinking, just how could, what kind of mind could ever come up, ever have the idea for a place like this? Um, and you just get lost in the awe and the majesty of it. And to be honest with you, I would say the most fun I've had driving around there is probably driving, you know, a really, really good car at about 
eight and a half tenths. So you've always got a bit of a margin because apart from anything else, you know, there are particularly, you know, the weather's very strange there. Um, there are all sorts of times when, you know, you can be out there and it, will, it could have been dry for a couple of hours, but you'll discover because there's overhanging foliage, it hasn't dried out underneath a certain patch of trees and, and that can stick you in the wall and, and all sorts of things. Um, and I think that if you just go and drive it, you know, fast but steady and just immerse yourself in the entire experience of being there rather than try and kid yourself here, Jackie Stewart, then I think that for me is always the way that most people, certainly those who aren't racing, will get the most out of the place. I always find it a, a, a slight relief actually when the driving is over for the day, for the weekend, and you can then pile into the Piston Klaus or another bar there, have a steak on a stone, have some beers, share some driving stories. And, you know, when the, the stress and pressure of having to drive and stay safe around the place is over and you can just relax and enjoy the atmosphere. Yeah, this is exactly what I was saying about racing there um, and, you know, particularly racing slow stuff. Um, when I first raced there in that Clio, uh, we were at the back of a very big grid. Uh, I think it was a six hour VLN um, and there were Vipers at the other end, you know, proper, you know, the more spec vipers v8 mm. bmw m3 gtrs driven by people like han stuck um and <laughs> and and the other problem with it was you know apart from the main straight it doesn't really have any straights if you're driving around a british airfield circuit you can always see the buggers coming but you can't at the nurburgring because it just it's just turn after turn after turn and then suddenly you'll just see this wall of headlights and there are eight of them and they're on you and they're carrying 60 miles an hour more than you and you just feel i mean i ended up actually just um, knocking the mirror away so I couldn't see what was going on behind me because it was just so utterly terrifying and it's exactly what you say the best bit is having done it and that is what I think makes the Nürburgring unique for me at least absolutely agree it's a it's a really special place um, I, I suspect most of you listening have been out there if you haven't you absolutely have to go it's like nowhere else uh, in the world um, Andrew anything else to add on the Nürburgring yeah, no, just that. If you haven't go, go. Make sure um, the track is open. It's not the sort of place that you can just bowl up at. Um, the vast majority of the time it's locked down during um, manufacturer days, so um, it won't be available anyway. Um, it's quite expensive now, um, but goodness, it's worth it. Um, and if you can afford it, buy a clump of tickets. Don't just buy a lap because you'll just come back at the end of it and you'll, it'll just have fried your brain. You won't have had time to um, chip away at it, to understand it at all. Uh, and just remember, you're never going to go off in your first two or three laps. It's when you think you know probably which way the track goes and maybe you haven't got many laps left and you really want to f- experience what driving fast is around it. That's the time just to peg it back a bit um, because then you'll go home with a big smile on your face. There you go. That's Drive Nation on the Nürburgring. Um, hope you enjoyed listening. Um, remember, you can find Drive Nation on Instagram. It's at drivenation underscore. Um, if you want us to talk about a particular topic, please get in touch, message us through Instagram or um, on Twitter, wherever you want to, uh, and let us know what we should talk about. And Andrew will read through those. And if plenty of you ask for it, we'll chat about it. Um, what, what do you think we need to talk about next, Andrew? Oh, um, also, I mean, where do you want to start? Um, future of motoring. That would be interesting. Uh, future of motor racing. Future of um, old cars, you know. They're going to ban. They're going. They're, they're going to ban petrol and diesel. So, oh, what are we going to do about you know those of us who like futting around in slow old sheds? Um, you know, um, all sorts. I don't think we're going to run out of topics anytime soon.
Yep. Okay. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. Please rate this podcast where you can. Please leave uh, leave a comment, particularly on iTunes, um, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Thanks, one and all. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 